Welcome to Obey Your Strengths with Gallup Certified Strengths Coach, Kathy Kirsten. Well, thanks for being on the Obey Your Strengths podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to introduce Pat for those listeners today who aren't familiar with Pat. We all, most of us know of him. Pat is the co-founder of Rackspace Hosting. He's also a board member and partner for Active Capital. And that's just really how he does his angel investing and mentorship to startups. And the list of startups that he has mentored through the years include webmail.us, which eventually was acquired by Rackspace. Mm -hmm. He's also mentored and invested in FreshBooks, Tenfold, and others. Now, I call Pat a strengths evangelist. I don't know if you call yourself that, Pat, but that's what <laughs> I call you. He's also a father of four and married to Dr. Crystal Glanchy, the founder of Venture Lab. And she recently published a new book called Venture Girls, Raising Girls to Be Tomorrow's Leader, which is Leaders, which is a very exciting thing. So welcome, Pat. Thank you. Hey, will you start us out uh, and tell us what your top five strengths are? And perhaps if you could sum it up, your top five, mm -hmm. in a sentence or two or three as to what these things mean to you, what these five words mean, um, I'd love to hear it. Got it. So my f top five are achiever, deliberative, strategic, futuristic and self-assurance. And, you know, when I think about these things, so I'll just go through them one by one. So awesome. when I think of Achiever, this is sort of this constant whisper of discontent. I always, I never quite feel satisfied with having done enough or accomplished enough. The sales team at Rackspace always had this sort of running joke, like you go f at the end of a month, you're a hero, and then you start the next month at zero again. Your quota basically resets every month. So you go from mm -hmm. hero, hitting your quota to zero the next month. And for me, I almost feel like that every day. It's just like every day I have to feel like I accomplished something. And if I don't, you know, I'm just, I have this whisper of discontent. That's, to me, that's achiever. Strategic, I just like to be able to see how, sort of how everything fits together. And if I can't see that, or I don't have access to that, or I can't, uh, it, it's very frustrating to me because I'd like to put those pieces together. Mm. Uh, futuristic, uh, there's a sentence in the definition of this one that always resonated with me, but futuristic is people who like to look forward, uh, but also people who like to rally others to a better future. And I, that always really resonated with me. I like to think about what's coming next. And when you, when I look at my career at Rackspace beyond just sort of getting going, but then as it progressed over the years and we grew and we scaled, I just always wanted to figure out what was going to happen next with the company or the industry or the market. That was just where I gravitated towards. You know, some people, my dad was a history buff and he had context. And, you know, I really, which is basically looking backwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he and I just on that talking about stuff, I never wanted to look backwards. It's ancient history. It's already done. Let's talk about what's next. That's futuristic. Deliberative. Um, this is, uh, and I think this is probably a very prominent one for me. You know, it comes in many flavors, but it's somebody who likes to really think deeply about something, often very quietly and introvertedly, and uh, figure out like all the angles of something before they pass judgment on it. My parents growing up said stuff like, oh, Pat holds his cards really close. It's hard to know what he's thinking about. Mm -hmm. And and I've certainly had other rackers tell me in meetings sometimes, they go, Pat, sometimes we look at you and you're just gazing off into the distance and we have no idea what's going on in your head. And I'm like, you know, sometimes I don't either. I have no idea what's going on. Um, and then self-assurance, this is, uh, you know, one that I just, I sort of, I think about it as talking myself into a position and then just sticking with it. And it's hard to sway me from it. And I just, I feel like I can get conviction around something. And when I have it, I stick with it. 
You know, when you sent me your top five strengths, I was wow. really surprised to see one of them in particular. Yep. I think of you as a, the co-founder of Rackspace. I mean, yep. I've heard your story and the story of founding Rackspace yep. uh, a thousand times. Uh-huh. And I would have assumed you were an activator. Mm-hmm. So when I saw deliberative, yep. I was like, what? Yep. How? How are you? A de- like, so tell me what that means to you. You said it resonates the most. Yep. Uh, a, a founder, an investor who has deliberative, what does that mean for uh, the work you do or the drive you have and what you invest in? Yep. So for me, the deliberative thing, um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, by the way. For me, it's, it's about getting it right. Like it's about sort of like thinking about something until you have, and and for me, it's until I have enough self-assurance about it that it's actually the right answer. Mm -hmm. It's like getting, and, and, you know, it could be called persnickety or wanting it just to be a certain way. Um, But to me, it's not complete until it's right. And, and that takes a lot of brain power because, you know, it's, at least for me, it's easy to get stuff to like 90% right. But then that last 10% can be really, really hard. And that's where I just really like to dig in and sort of shape something properly. And so I'll tell you, sometimes that can take a really long time. And that's, I think, why your comment of, I, I can't believe you have deliberative and, and be a founder because it seems like you'd be thinking about stuff too much, I think maybe is what you were getting at. Or that my situations might be so risky that you were oh. unwilling to take yeah, them. Yeah, you know, th- that's the part that I've never really reconciled because I, when most, I don't consider myself risk averse. I mean, I, I've, I've never, most of the big decisions in my life, I've actually done very quickly without like, I've- You haven't overthought? I haven't overthought. I've just mostly, I don't want to say snap decisions, but what I would consider pretty quick. And, but I think the truth is with deliberative, you can, you can over-optimize and overthink about something and sort of not end up taking that first step or taking a risk on something. And I'm very mindful of that. When I look back, you know, a lot of this strength stuff is really about partnership Yeah, and in figuring out, you know, when I read between the lines, at least in the first version of the book, it's really about figuring out having a common vocabulary so you know how to talk about yourself and perhaps others so that you can also, you can find people who compliment you and partners that that sort of complete you in a way that make you stronger than some of your parts. Absolutely. And one of the the partnerships that Gallup tells people with deliberative to look for are Uh those with activator. And on the coaching side, we also call someone who frustrates you a perfect partner mm. <laughs> because you see the world from different lenses. So therefore, if, you are see- if you're both looking at the same project from different lenses, it's- you're more likely to have a better, well-rounded outcome yep. in that partnership. So tell me, what partnerships exist in your life? Yep. It's great. It's a great question. And uh, so you're right in the back of the first version of that of the strengths book, there's a section about how to manage people with deliberative and all the other strengths. And one of the things it says in deliberative specifically was that you'd be well served to partner with activators. And when I first sort of took the test and read the book the first time, which was, I don't know, 2002, maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> whenever it came very out. Very early on. Very early. Um, I read that and I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting. And I gave it to Dirk and Richard and they took it as well who were my original uh, partners at Rackspace. And lo and behold, both of them were activators. And I, you know, I said, hmm, that's interesting. And of course, you know, they were basically roommates in college that we got matched up randomly together. So there was no sort of science to it back then. But, you know, there were a lot of people you meet throughout your sort of college career. And for whatever reason, we all gravitated towards each other. And maybe it was we just liked each other. Maybe it was we had common interests. Who knows what? But it, I, I find it very interesting that I went into business with them 
And they had sort of what Gallup would say is a recommended strength for a deliberative person to partner with in, in that activator strength. And I think we sort of found each other by accident, but we probably had a sense that we were right together at that moment in time. Um, so I thought it's interesting that both of my original partners had activator as a strength. My wife has activator as a strength. Um, and when I look at a lot of the uh, sort of startups that I have mentored and helped and invested in over the years, you know, more often than not, I think you'll find an, at least one person as a co-founder of these companies that has Activator, for example, as a right. strength. And I, I sort of get drawn to that because I know I've seen this play out before with partnership where I can really um, be a, a different kind of opposite force and be useful in that situation. Yeah. Um, and so, you've learned how to navigate it in a relationship, which mm -hmm. this is the thing that is beautiful about strengths is that when you know that you have these patterns, right? Yep. And from afar, I bet Dirk and Richard in the early days before you had language like strengths, yep. there was something fascinating and both frustrating about them, right? Oh, absolutely. And you're trying to go start a business and you're IT consultants and yeah. you're generalizing <laughs> yeah. all the work you did trying to just make a buck. Yeah. And then you went in, all in on, on Rackspace and the idea of hosting. Uh, there had to be times where they were wanting to gun for something. Yeah. And you were saying, slow down, guys. Yeah. This is not sustainable. Yeah, I think I've had this come up many times. They'll say, you know, I, th I think of uh, activators sometimes as leaping before they look. And they'd say about me, man, you look too much before you leap. Mm -hmm. my, my wife says I slow her down all the time. This is like her thing. You're like, oh, I just want to go and say yes to everything. And you, all you do is slow me down. And I think that, that that's that natural tension that where, where when, you, when you sort of put those two things together, you find a, a, like this great middle ground. Yeah, uh, if you can navigate the angst and uh, annoyingness around it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then you're building something fascinating. That's right. Like a healthy marriage. That's right. And That's a $5 right. billion dollar company. Yes. But no, Richard and Dirk and I all, we certainly had, uh, I mean, that was, we had a lot of tension around that. Morris, one of our initial investors and his partner, Graham, mm -hmm. um, one, Morris was an activator and, and Graham was not. So I think probably there, there was something to that as well. Ah, that's um, awesome. Yeah. That's so great. Well, I, in, in preparing for our interview today, I read an article. Uh, it was published by our alumni uh -huh. association at Trinity. Okay. And you were quoted... Well, they asked you the question about what what was the one thing you were proud of. This is a, a year or two ago, I believe, mm -hmm. Pat. And, um, you know, because Rackspace went public in 2008, and then they exited in 2016 for $5 billion. And the, you said the thing that made you the most proud was that we built, and this is, I'm quoting you here, we built a place where people love coming to the office and doing their best work every day. I think that's pretty rare, and I can't imagine building a company culture in a different way. Yep. Man, that is rare. And I, you know, since I was a racker, thank you for doing that. <laughs> it was um, absolutely a best place to work. Uh, it deserves every bit of where it is on the Fortune best place to work list. But how did the founders start out to do that? Did you start out to build a cult culture that way? I would say that like a lot of things, uh, they're started with tactics, not strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think when, for Richard and Dirk and me, at least, I can say that, you know, we had all had jobs before that we had done either before college or during college or perhaps even right after college that we didn't like or there were aspects of them we didn't like. There was a reason we all decided like, forget about this. We're going to go try to figure something out on our own. Um, and, you know, we had all worked at places where we were like, it's hard to imagine coming in here every day for our lives, much less the next month or year. Uh, and we just sort of 
committed to ourselves that let's build a place where we want to actually come to the office every day, uh, whatever that might look like. We, we've certainly seen examples in our own respective lives where that wasn't the case. And let's just make sure those things don't creep in here. And it started very simple. And when there are three people, it's pretty easy. It's like, oh, you want to have you know, a, a couch that you can go lie down on if you're working late one night. Okay, we'll just put a couch in here. You know, if you want it, you want a fridge where we can have snacks, we'll just do that, you know? And it's, but scaling that across many different uh, people's preferences and, and across many uh, big organizations, much more complicated. And frankly, there was really no um, uh, roadmap for that. But it started with just a simple desire to like going to the office every day because the truth is we slept at the office for many, many months as we got started. And so, you know, if it's your home and your work, it better be pretty good. Otherwise you're going to want to leave all the time. That's true. So that's true. If now looking back in reflection, are there a couple of lessons you learned, like things that, that hit at Rackspace or things that really worked at Rackspace around culture that now when you're mentoring budding startups or entrepreneurs who are trying to build businesses, are they, you know, what things are in your playbook when it comes to culture? Yeah. I think one thing for, Certainly at a company, really in almost any environment where there are human beings, people want to feel like they have a voice and they want to be heard. And if, you know, again, in a small team with a few people, really easy to do and large scale, much more complicated to do. But people need to sort of feel like they have a voice in, in what they're doing and in their future and and hopefully with the sort of direction and culture of the company itself so they can feel like they're part of something bigger. I think if if you just go to do your uh, your job and and it doesn't feel like you have a voice in shaping what you're doing, it's going to just feel like a job and you're going to leave and you're not going to you know, you're not going to put your best into it and the company won't get the best out of you. And that's just, that doesn't work. And so to me, having a voice is really important. Um, doesn't mean that it, everything is going to go your way, but when people feel like they can speak their mind and be, be open, mm -hmm. I, I just, I feel like that's half the battle. Yeah. Any other ideas that you tell entrepreneurs to think about as they grow? I think a lot of uh, growing a company is about sort of growing yourself as well and being introspective. I mean, the truth is one of the, the, the brilliant parts of the whole Gallup framework, I think, is that you take a test and then perhaps, you know, you read the results, perhaps you, perhaps you never think about it again. You won't get much out of it if that's the case. They're just words in a piece of paper. In fact, I'm pretty sure Gallup wrote the definitions and then chose the best fit word for the definition that they wrote after interviewing all these people. Um, and they're just words in a piece of paper, but it's a framework to talk about something that's just just human nature. I mean, there are things that we're all good at and things that we're not good at. And the story I, I often tell, and I certainly told the rookie rackers was that, um, you know, I grew up with parents that said, you know, Pat, if you work really hard and you put your mind to it, you can be world-class at anything you want. And what I have learned is it's actually, that statement isn't quite true. And it's kind of a bummer because we've all probably heard something like that from a loved one. But what is true is that if we apply ourselves and work really hard and spend our time on things that we have natural talent for, then we can be truly world-class at it. But part of the trick is figuring out what that is. And when, you're, when you've been told, at least like I was for a lot of my life, hey, you could be world-class at anything you want, you kind of go, ah, what should I do? Like, I, you know, it, it doesn't provide actually a great roadmap. It's almost like paralyzed by infinity. It's like, I can do anything. Thinking back, you know, what would have been more helpful is figuring out, you know, starting with what are the things I actually like to do every day? 
And so I, you know, I could have spent the last 20 years or 30 years or 40 years now of my life hitting golf balls side by side with Tiger Woods every day, same coaches, hitting just as many rounds of golf, playing the same practice rounds. And we'd both, you know, we would have sunk our whole lives into it. And we'd sit down and play and he'd beat me every single time. And it's because he spent all those hours applying all of that to something he had a talent for. And me, I just am not talented at golf. That's just, that's just. I'd still be good after all that practice. I'd be really good, but I wouldn't be really world class. And I think that that to me that that epiphany is is part of your question was really about entrepreneurship. What advice do I give? You need to figure out and be super honest with yourself about where you're good and where you're not. And honestly, it's that's a hard question to answer. You don't. It's just not like you have an epiphany when I go. Oh, now I know the answer. It's actually a journey. And it's usually not one done alone. You need to do it with a lot of people around you that know you, that are willing to be truth tellers and give you honest feedback. Um, because as you can figure out, you know, where you fit, where you, where people go, oh, I, Pat's famous for this, or he's really good at this. We should go talk to him about that. That's pretty valuable. If I, if I find people coming to me for something, it probably means I'm good at it. And I should take note of that and figure out you know, what it is that, that I do that is valuable there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my advice to entrepreneurs is be introspective. We, we, all of us, especially as entrepreneurs, you don't have time for anything. Go, 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 go. You got to knock stuff off your list and spend a little time thinking about yourself and where you're good uh, because it'll, it'll pay big dividends down the road. Do you know? Okay, so when, when I joined Rackspace in 2006, top five strengths were already displayed on everyone's cuticle. Yep. How in the world did you get a bunch of geeks uh-huh. to post their top five strengths on their cubicles? This is just tactical question. Yeah, really. it's a great question. Well, first of all, you cannot, we made, we did many things right with strengths. We did many things wrong with strengths. Well, first of all, the first thing we did right was just, it's actually the thing Gallup did right, which was, this is about your strengths. There's no bad answer on this test. You know, you I, I've taken probably 20 different personality tests and so many of them are about things you're not good at. Yeah. And that just, Gallup just left that part off. You know, they sort of stack ranked you. And like my number 34 is input. And, you know, I don't remember anything and I don't collect anything. And I don't, I, you know, whatever. I'm not a pack rat. And these are all <laughs> in, input, you know, things. Right. Yeah, I'm and kidding. it's just low on my list. It's number two for okay. me. Okay. So, yeah, you, you <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I would have lots rat. of, yeah. yeah totally. um, but, but, but make it, it had such a positive spin on it. You like to me when I think about Gallup, they got a, a common vocabulary for everybody to talk about. Number two, they made it very positive. They said, "Look, we just they got off the table very quickly. You're not world class at everything. Focus on what you're good at. Let's talk about those things and categorize them." And they they just they made it very um, non intimidating. You know how it. it operating companies, people are always like, I don't want to fill out the survey. Maybe my boss is going to see the answer and I don't want to yes. say anything. And like that was a very common thing I heard over and over again at Rackspace. Right. Even if it was anonymous, how do we really know it's anonymous? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, people are worried about that. And so the strengths thing, you could easily see it being misused. It's like, oh, that person's that person's strategic or deliberative. Eh, I don't know about that. Yep. And I think that we were uh, in the very beginning just very good about Hey, just put it up there. We didn't even really know enough about it ourselves to like to judge really. And so people just felt very open and it was became a vocabulary for them too. I think some of the mistakes we made though, once we started getting a little bit of the hang of it and how it worked and how we saw, you know, part of the magic of it is, you know, you have things like Myers-Briggs, which are one thing. It's kind of an open source personality thing. Uh, there are only 16 combinations, which is few enough that a normal human can get their head around that. The problem with the strength stuff is that it is sort of almost infinite mm-hmm. in its in its nuance. 
And it's like, uh, you, and so the only way, at least for me, you know, I had to just look for pattern recognition. After I saw enough people that did similar work and had similar strengths, I could start going, I see a pattern there. You know, a lot of the best salespeople in our sort of inside sales model, you kept seeing achiever or competition or woo. Uh, or strategic or individualization. You saw these things over and over again. And you go, ah, some of the best salespeople kind of have these strengths. It must mean something. You know, I'm not sure exactly mm-hmm. what it means, but it must mean something. I think that once we started getting the hang of strengths and seeing how uh, it applied to performance, we we too quickly thought we were experts at it and, and used it to interview people, used it to um, sort of... Uh, I don't want to say intentionally pigeonhole, but once once you go, oh, that person has positivity, they must be happy all the time. Not quite true, you right. know. Absolutely. And and so I think that we probably uh, got ahead of ourselves with actually applying it to culture. Okay, yeah. so you knew that, yeah, and that you were starting to look for recipes of strengths yep. for jobs. Yep. But that's not necessarily the right way to do it. No, Gallup would say. Don't use it in interviews. I think it's, they right. say that explicitly. That's exactly what they say. They probably said that after they learned we were doing it. It's not a selection tool. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, I think that lots of people want that because yeah. it would be so nice to have to pay twenty bucks and have someone take a forty-five minute test yeah. and then, hey, are you the right yeah. candidate for this role? And fill in the blank, whether it's in finance or sales or account management or customer service or whatever. Yeah. We're always wanting to shortcut that. Yeah. But really, we've learned, and we learned at Rackspace that while there are certain themes that are hungry for certain environments, like obviously competition in sales. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. it just happened. But we learned that we couldn't cut someone out of the candidate candidate process if they didn't have competition in their top five. Yep. Um, you know, I sort of did it to you whenever I said, wow, you're yeah. an investor in a in a startup guy who has deliberative. Yeah. I wouldn't expect that. So I've already, as a strength coach, yeah. you know, I have um, ideas in my heads and recipes. And whenever I get to see someone who's highly successful like you are, with deliberative, you then you go. How could that? You no. Yeah. It just gives me another element of dynamic yeah. around my deliberative. Yeah. No, I think it's poster child. It's it's <laughs> it is well. It's true. I mean, so you know, it's to me, it's about figuring out how to apply that to my craft in a way that adds value, and yeah. maybe it doesn't. You know, and so when I look at companies, I like to, I tend to like to see things that are, um, uh, I'll just call it de-risked. I mean, none of these things are de-risked, but when it's when there's a clear business model, that's de-risked at least to some extent to me. Like, you know, uh, there are a lot of investors who only want to invest in something that's just an idea, super cutting edge, hasn't been proven yet. Like, that's probably not for me. And I think some of that has to do with my deliberative. It's like, it's just not quite concrete enough. It doesn't mean that it can't work. I mean, I am drawn to futuristic next things, but for me, it has to be, I have to understand the risk around it. And that's how I reconcile the whole risky investing that doesn't seem maybe on the surface uh, consistent with deliberative. Well, I wonder how much, so that's a beautiful imagery of how your deliberative plays in your head. Yeah. And I wonder how much of your self-assurance and your true north will override it's, some of your deliberative. It's like, a great point. My gut feels it. I know yeah. this is right. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And even if it fails, I'm still going to be happy I did it because yeah. it was true to me. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much of that self-assurance. I, You know, I kind of wonder what how different I would be if I didn't have self-assurance or achiever. Like, you just pull one of those things out. And that's kind of what I meant by the nuance of these, this test is mm-hmm. there's, there's so much to it. I mean, if you were to tweak the chemistry of it just a little... It's it's like genetics. I mean, what if you just change a little genetics, you might get a totally different person. You never know. Oh, you know. I love that idea. Yeah, yeah, totally. We used strengths in a lot of different ways at Rackspace. Fun 
right? We, we um, yep. did strengths for couples. We did strengths for kids at tech camp. Um, I know in your circle of influence, you used strengths whenever, uh, or you introduced strengths to the entrepreneurial program at Trinity mm-hmm. University. Yep. What was the thought behind that? Did you just want to share strengths language or did you think that it really could create some partnerships in that class or in that group? You know, tell me more about that. Yeah. So uh, kind of sort of how I mentioned before, I, I felt like one of the underlying tones in uh, the book is about partnership and and finding people that that complement you in just the right ways. Maybe share your values, but complement your strengths. And to me, I found that by accident in my life, you know, without a vocabulary or what, you know, at least with Dirk and Richard, I found that we just sort of figured it out. But to me, the magic of strengths was the framework that it it allowed, it made it easy for everybody to have a common vocabulary to talk about it. And so at least with Trinity and other companies that I've introduced strengths to is that, um, well, for students, it's purely about getting to know yourself a little oh, better yeah. and having your, just having a, a, a place to, to work from in a, in a common way. And maybe you can find a, a partner and a classmate, or maybe you can just understand yourself better, purely, uh, you know, uh, wanting to help them. Uh, understand themselves better with companies. I mean, there's a real, I think what we saw at Rackspace was that beyond just wanting to do good and help, help people figure themselves out more, you can actually sort of plot the course and see how that has an economic impact for a company uh, when people are really engaged at work. And uh, so what does that mean engaged at work? Well, if you only love your 20% of the work you do every day, that means 80% of your time is doing stuff you don't really love doing. And I think we all intuitively know that when we love what we're doing, we kind of get in the zone, mm-hmm. you know, we get flow, whatever you want to call it, yep. but we just, more stuff happens. It's like an amazing time when the day flies by and you've done so much stuff and it doesn't even feel like work. And I think for me, that's one of these these little flags that pop up. When I do something and it doesn't feel like work, that probably means I'm doing the right stuff because it doesn't feel like work. It feels like fun. And... um so from a company perspective, if you can get everybody in that flow moment, if you can move them from doing, having 20% of their time in flow or doing the work they love to 50% or 80%, think about how much more you can, how much more you can get out of that person and how much more they're going to get out of their work and enjoy their time. It, it just, it's going to, it's going to, it's a great investment. I mean, yeah. and it, it, it ta- unfortunately, it takes years to play out. I mean, it doesn't happen the next day. You know, this stuff is, is a, is, there's a path to discovery, but over time, man, it, it's a great investment to make. Yeah. We, we really got the return on the investment yeah. of that at Rackspace, yeah. right? It was called fanatical support. It was, it was. Well, Pat, have you done strengths in depth with any of your other invested companies, the companies that you're working with? Yeah. So I, I was uh, very early on at uh, a company called FreshBooks. I shared uh, with the founders of that company the strength stuff, and I, um, you know, told them what I had gotten from it, and why I liked it, and how it created, you know, great culture, and and how we used it as a tool. And um, they all took it; they all loved it. And you know, when you walk around their office now, it's probably three hundred people. They all have strengths cards that look just like this in their desks, yeah. and they have sort of taken and they've met a number of people with Gallup and in the Gallup ecosystem along the years. So they've sort of gotten lots of advice and guidance on it as well. But um, and look, it's it, they've been named many years in a row now one of the best places to work in Canada. And you know why is that? You know, is it just the strengths? No, no, that's it, it, part. but it's a part of it. Yep. It's a tool that they use. But it's really leadership that cares about culture. 
And it's been very deliberate that they've done it that way mm-hmm. um, because they, they care and they see, they see that it's a valuable thing in, in building a real world-class organization where people want to come to work every day. It's something that I try to introduce to every company I ever work with is, as a tool that could be really good. You know, is it effective uh, at every one of them? No. Um, not because it's not a good tool, but uh, the leaders have to really believe it's it's the tool for them, and they're gonna and they they believe in the culture, and this is one of the things they're gonna do to help stimulate it. But I've seen it work over and over again, especially in service oriented businesses. Like it's just so it's just powerful. Well, I was had the pleasure of being coached in 2008 by a Gallup great. His name is Kurt Leavesfield, and he's actually the author of Living with Your Strengths. And he uh, said. The role of a person is connected to the soul of a person huh. around strengths. And so I did a lot of digging around in that for a few years after I left Rackspace and I had time on my hands with rocking babies and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> sitting at playgrounds with little toddlers and such of reading lots of books and doing lots of reflective stuff. And I don't know if you'd agree with this or if your deliberative even wants to go that deep <laughs> on my podcast, but I feel like, yeah, you know, if I think about the way people know me, people know me to get super passionate, I believe, Mm -hmm. around certain things in my life. And then I want to learn all about them. And then I want to maximize them. So I'm very impatient, looking for excellence. So I see how in all of my roles of life, whether it was my account management at Rackspace, or my current role as a coach um, for teams and organizations who want to utilize StrengthsFinder, man, it's connected to something so deep that sometimes I don't even recognize how deep it yep. is that these strengths go. Yep. Yeah, I have something. There's, And I, I don't know how to peg it on one particular strength of mine, but I, I have noticed that I, when, when stuff doesn't fit together right for me, like it can be something like, like I have a vegetable garden. If that vegetable, if something about it's not right, it drives me nuts and I want to fix it. I just, and it, it can be the littlest thing. It, it could probably come across as OCD or persnickety or whatever you want to call it. But for me, if I have a vision of what I want it to be and it doesn't fit it, I will not stop until it's fixed. And and it, it can be, it, it probably is some sort of disease because it can definitely be taken to the extreme because at some point you just got to go, ah, the cabbage is going to grow that way, you know, whatever. But um, I, I have found that about myself. It's like probably strategic, futuristic, and then maybe self. I don't, who knows what it is? I just my, I know it's my strengths that wanting it all to fit just right and be be right. Whatever my definition of right is for that situation. Right. You know, it'd be interesting to see your six through ten. I, I can tell you what they are. What are they? You ready? Okay. Yeah, I'm um, ready. Competition, oh, focus, yes. command, individualization, and relator. Oh, your relator is your redeeming factor. Yeah. Relator, <laughs> relator is actually wow. number six. I, I didn't do those in order, but that's that okay. Is, so I've taken this test ten times, and self assurance and relator they pop out in five or six. Really? Yeah. Because you've got some strong follow me. We're, I'm going to awesomeness. Yeah. Strengths <laughs> influencing strengths. Competition focus. I've, and I've it? had my parents take this. I've, you know, I've had my, so I've, ta- I basically had everybody in my Man. life take this test at some point. It's of course, it's yeah, very, very interesting. Me too. I yeah. love it. <laughs> I've embedded it at church. I've embedded it at my home life. I'm like, everyone take their strength. Yeah, it's what I do. Uh, that's awesome. Let's talk about your futuristic for a moment. Now I know Graham has futuristic. Graham mm-hmm. Weston has mm-hmm. futuristic, and I've heard him dream very far into the future. Matter of fact, in 2008, I remember him saying something about. We should build a strength-based city. And mm-hmm. at the time, I was like, "How? In what does that even mean? We, yeah, how would we even do that? <laughs> like, are you going to buy codes for everyone in San Antonio?" 
And now I kind of see how that comes together as yeah. we knock down um, every, you know, a bunch of different organizations and all different types of businesses. We keep flaming the strings fire. But how far does your futuristic dream mm. in advance? Is it three years, five years, 10 years, 30 years? And uh, how much does it that pull to the future drive your day to day? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I like to think pretty far out into the future. Tell um, us how far. Oh, <laughs> like, I mean. Impress us. Is it 30 years? Is it? No, I think it's, I mean, I think it's uh, more than 30 years. What? We're like, no, I mean, really? I just, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it'd be interesting. I think about what world my kids and my kids' kids are going to oh, live in. Like, really? what is that world going to be like? I mean, I was just, actually, I just, I just got sent a video uh, last night uh, of me holding my uh, daughter, who and this was in 2008, right when she was born, and that was like I, I looked at it. I go, this was like, this was she was born after the iPhone. It was taken with an iPhone. And I was like, this is after the iPhone was like that's she has not known a world where the iPhone didn't exist, right, or a smartphone. And I think all that change in 10 years is pretty amazing. I mean, thinking about 100 years, it's kind of interesting what you could you let your mind run wild. I'll tell you though, something about futuristic people and since i'm one of them i feel like i can say this but it always bugs me when you're watching a movie and it, even movies made today and it says you know you know um mars base 2021 and i go there's no way there's going to be a mars base in 2021 <laughs> i mean it actually seems more possible now than it has before but you know when things when i think the thing futuristic people get wrong or often way off on is the actual practicality and the time frame of how long it's going to take from here to there. And this is maybe my deliberative with my futuristic. It's just a tad bit of practicality to it is that, you know, I feel like futurists in general are usually awfully wrong with their timelines on stuff. They usually are right about the end, end goal. It's just how we get there and the time the timeline to get there is usually way off. And well, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Well, it's one of the, theme, the themes, the strengths themes that I have envy for because yeah. I don't even think about next year. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't think about my grandkids. I should. I really feel bad now that I say that out loud. But, you know, like I'm just not – and I don't like Star Wars. And I was going to ask you, <laughs> but you're wearing a Star Wars shirt. I, so yeah, I, I, know you like, yeah. I know you like futuristic stuff. Yeah. I was I was born in the late seventies, so my favorite movies were all Star Wars. Well, movies. I was born in the late seventies too, and I could give a flip about yeah, Star Wars. Yeah, well, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's futuristic. I mean, yep. it's all about the stuff that hasn't been created yet. Yep, it's true. I mean, I like I tend I I gravitate towards things that are, um, you know, even with you know, sort of when I was a kid, computers, uh, electronics, things that I could sort of take apart and put back together that a lot of other people weren't interested in or didn't understand yet. I just for whatever reason, I gravitated towards those things. And it was probably my futuristic going, hey, that's a new thing. I kind of want to learn about it. Um, and I, you know, I look, both my parents had context as, as a strength. And they were both super history buffs. Like they wanted to, like as a kid, they took us to all these old churches and talked about history and dates of who conquered what and when. And I was like, I just don't care. When are we going to NASA? Just, let's go, yeah, yeah, let's go let's, visit NASA. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I just had never had any. And then I go, well, maybe I, just, I guess I just am not interested in that. And now uh, at least I can see why they were and I'm not. You know, I right. just, to me, it, it's it's history. It already happened. You know, it's interesting to see. Like, it's hard to actually go build the future world without having an idea of what it might be. Now, you may not be right about it, but having a, a sort of a map for me having a map to go build towards is is what i need otherwise i'll be running around aimlessly just doing stuff left and right 
with no sort of end game. And to me, the futuristic thing is is actually figuring out what that future state is that I want to build towards. So there's this pattern of futuristic thinkers that uh -huh. think beyond their own generation into further generations into the future. I wish I had that. I don't. <laughs> well, I, I wish I had belief in uh, input. Well, yeah, you should because it's awesome. <laughs> they are awesome. <laughs> well, I was super passionate, passionate about yeah. strings. I love to read every book about it. Um, well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Pat, for joining Obey thanks Your Strengths. Thanks for having me. It's been fun learning about your strengths journey. And thanks for letting us dig into that deliberative. Absolutely. I learned something today. <laughs> thanks so me much. Me too. Thanks. <laughs> to learn more about Kathy Kirsten, visit her website, kathykirsten.com. That's K-A-T-H-Y-K-E-R-S-T-E-N.com. Obey Your Strengths is produced by Geekdom Media in association with Game Day Media Enterprises. Executive produced by Lorenzo Gomez, John Garcia, and Michael Largent.